Welcome to Everything Speaks If You Listen. This week, I'm talking to my friend Mary DeYoung of Waymarkers. She was my guide on my Iona pilgrimage, and we let ourselves meander in this conversation. You'll notice this podcast is longer than normal, and y'all know I can talk, but um, we, yeah, tune in and and settle in with a long walk, a cup of coffee, maybe fold some laundry. I think you're really going to enjoy what Mary offers in terms of a rich and deep connection to the earth and the body of ourselves and what story does as a sacred vehicle for both. And I think you're also really going to enjoy her telling of the Inuit story, Fox Woman Dreaming. If you love this episode and you like the other episodes where we dive into questions and we let resolution and answers just fall away into mystery so that we can keep exploring community with ourselves and each other, um, please let folks know about the podcast. I appreciate the likes, the shares, and the comments on um, yeah, those platforms where podcasts are hosted, which I can't remember the name of right now because I have a menopausal brain, but you know, the places Spotify and Apple. Anyway, all of your engagement with that and your sharing lets the big algorithm know that small folks like me are in the world having conversations that are meaningful to people. So I appreciate it. Come along for this story be gentle with yourselves in the listening of it. It is powerfully provocative and powerfully opening. Take care and join us. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Everything Speaks. If you listen, it's Jen. And remember last week when I told you that my friend Mary was going to be on the podcast with me. She is here and I'm so excited. Um, Mary DeYoung is a spiritual ecologist, eco-theologian, wild soul guide, urban naturalist, and practitioner and guide of place-based pilgrimage. She is who I went to Iona with in July. She's the person who I've been saying I'm going to go to Iona with for ages. And then I finally went, um, So Mary specializes in the spiritual companionship of rewilding, and she instructs spiritual directors and companions. She facilitates retreats and pilgrimages in the Pacific Northwest and in Iona. And this is a part of her bio, but I'm going to just say that this completely aligns with my lived experience. Her retreats and pilgrimages really do strengthen your unique, personal, unique, individual and mystical interconnection to the sacred, to yourself, and to the natural world. She's amazing. She has studied and practiced with the Celtic Christian spiritual tradition, which is from her maternal line of heritage, um, mine too, for over 20 years, and is influenced by the lives of the Celtic saints and the lands that guided them. So we're going to talk a little bit about the post-heroic journey and um, the, this framework that she will get into that ask us asks us to emerge as our own poets and prophets instead of just um, heroes and heroines. 
but I want to give space and time to say hello, Mary, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, Jen. Hi, (laughs) listeners. Hi. Oh, hi, all of the other wild ones who I think are probably leaning in right now. Um, A shadow just crossed over a back window, which is always an indicator to me that someone else just leaned their ear into our Mm. conversation. So just, I feel so, so excited to be here. Well, I, um, I was thinking as I've been telling people that you're going to come on to the podcast. And as I've been talking about Iona and what this trip meant, um, how exciting it is to chat with somebody who easily and joyfully moves between the different planes of consciousness and, and like sacred living that is available to all of us. The way you move from an everyday experience into this like story mythological experience, the way you um, can chat about making a lunch or sandwiches when we, <laughs> we were in the kitchen in Iona and then immediately feel the sacred ground of the bread, the table, the floor. It is, um, it is just such an, such an honor to be with. I don't know if I would call you like a veil piercer so much as just a, a bridge reminding us that we all have access to this deep sacred well within us and around us that is like constantly reaching out with invitation saying, engage with me be in relationship with me, listen to me, tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, so today you're going to share a story, Fox Woman Dreaming, but I wanted to ask you first, when we're using these words like mythology and veil piercer, which I just invented, um, that sounds like something <laughs> from an anime show. Um, what, what is, a, <laughs> I'm going to ask you both at the same time. What on earth is applied mythology, this mm-hmm. whole use of story as a way for us to connect to our story or sacred story or sacred presence? Like, what is this thing, applied mythology? And why would anybody in 2023, especially when the world is burning, mm-hmm. to be blunt, care about that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is this? What is this? It's like, what? what is all of this? Um I'm not good at elevator pitches, so I apologize for what will inevitably be very long-winded, circuitous, um, hopefully responses to to your amazing, beautiful questions. Um, Jen, I just also, before I even go there, I have to just speak to the image of my, in my mind, um, a shared image that we have now of the Iona Sea and what it's like to take off your clothes. Um, Maybe you have a swimsuit on underneath and maybe you don't and you get into the water and then you get out and you proceed with your day. And something about that image just feels resonant with whether it's veil piercer and we all are, by the way, it's just simply is that ability to in a moment be able to be like, ah, I want to be where I want to move from where I am into a different element. And then there's an intentional choice that's made. Mm-hmm. And that's either taking off the clothes and getting in the water mm-hmm. or it's becoming aware of the bread in your hand. And that mm-hmm. just takes a moment of breath and intention mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or filling the cup with um, 
with water. Oh, no, no, no. Filling the pot with water that I'm going to boil to make my hard boiled eggs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you ever come to Iona with me, you will know my, my daily heart um, for making the perfect hard boiled egg. But there's just something in that, in this, this choice we have, this moment of breath and intention that moves us, that pierces the veil and shines light on us from the other side. And, um, and I think that in a way brings us to, I think what my response to what is applied mythology, it, it is acknowledging that we live in storied times. Mm-hmm. And the piercing, the veil piercing is, is the moment where you breathe into that story and apply like, like what it invites, apply the elements, the archetypes, the images, the symbols, the metaphors into, onto, within your life. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, so I offer that. And then I step back a minute to say, um, probably moreover, um, than applied mythologist, I'm, I'm an eco-theologian. That is my training. And so now I want to just say that, you know, that, that is the work of, um, a critical analysis of Judeo-Christian scripture, particularly, and, looking at the text for through lines of ecological awareness, mm-hmm. as well as how have particular stories within that particular tradition become complicit mm-hmm. in, in worldviews that posit separation mm-hmm. as sacred. Mm-hmm. So so that that's that has been my primary body of work. But this is where I think it gets really cool. There's, this is where mythology gets really interesting, I should say. Applied mythology is essentially contextual theology. Right. Okay. So it's it's taking the story and applying it to our particular lives. Yeah. So that's where my I think my Mm, I get my work. It's for me exciting where I'm kind of moving as a theologian into this mythological realm. Mm-hmm. And to me, they're really kind of one and the same. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'd say also then that like within eco theology, um, there is a invitation to hold. And again, this is, this would be again, this kind of green thread that's already, through scripture, but it's finding that thread and holding to images, symbols, metaphors for the divine that often get just uh, totally shoved to the side um, in preference for monarch images Mm -hmm. for the divine. Okay. So you got your Kings and your Lords and your kingdom and all of that. And, and Eco-theology would say, wait a minute, we have all these other metaphors for this divine mystery that should be hold to them. Mm-hmm. We, we, could, we could begin to deconstruct and take, take stone by stone down of these militant castles that we have constructed 
and then applied to our imagination for the sacred. Yep. So working with then um, Im- with images and symbols that would say, no, you know what? The divine, the divine is actually earth stuff. Mm-hmm. It is, it is, um, it has feathers. It has four feet. It has um, fern. It is fern frond. It is, it is very animist. Yeah. It's embodied. It's incarnate. It's incarnate in the land that is all around us, that is under us, surrounding us. Mythology are stories that have come from the land. Mm -hmm. All these particular places the world over that have like opened up. And hear, hear me when I say like literally opened up their mouths and expressed story mm-hmm. myth is is etymologically linked to the greek word muthos which means mouth mm-hmm. this is the earth speaking orally so then as an eco theologian this is where i get stoked and really really excited because it's like whoa, 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 wait so if the earth is the body of god if if we have an animate natural more than human symbol you know metaphor idea for the divine and and the earth is opening its muthos its mouth to speak in story oh my goodness we have all of these folk tales and fairy tales and myths from all over the world that have divine power divine wisdom yes and and something about the the western mind says oh those stories need to be put up on a shelf i don't know when you get to be 12 or something (laughs) yeah or (laughs) in the library depending on the yeah yeah well I resonate so much with this because there's a reason why I named this podcast. Everything speaks. If you listen, Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the communion and the communal aspect that you experience, um, when the veil gets pierced and so let me just back up. I was making coffee the other day. I have an electric kettle finally poured it boiled. It's a really cool bluish green color. Um, had this mug. I threw in the tea, pour in the hot water. And as soon as I was doing it, I was holding this cup and I was thinking of the linworm story that you told us where um, one of the characters is holding two cups and she's speaking truth into these cups. And I'm holding this cup and I'm thinking of this story and I'm thinking about all the things I have to do in a given day. And I'm wondering if this tea is going to help my inflammation response that I'm very stressed about, which is probably inflaming me even more. And I'm thinking of a Gregory Allen Isakoff song where he talks about second chances and mentions a coffee cup. And then I start wondering what the day is going to hold. And I can feel the veil getting pierced right there. Mm-hmm. This coffee cup, the hot water it's starting to speak with a sacred voice. 
And it's starting to ask me questions like, are you going to tell me I'm not sacred? That this is not communion that you're experiencing right now? Because in this act of pouring this water, you're already feeling and sensing connections that have informed you from the past and are speaking to some of your fears and worries right now. And the thing that you're holding is this cup. But the question you're asking, Jennifer, is can you hold your day? Can you hold what your humanity is asking of you? Mm -hmm. And there is a tantalizing kind of little provocative question that's like, I won't say dares me, but kind of, you know, challenges me to say the follow-up question. And this is when the veil gets pierced. Mm -hmm. It's not a veil that suggests that like I'm living in one plane and God, spirit, universe or something is somewhere else. It's a, it's a veil within me that comes to believe that I am actually separate from all living sacred life. That is the veil that gets pierced in my experience. Mm -hmm. And so I get provoked and I finally ask the question, if I cannot hold what my day is asking me to hold, is there a cup? Is there a, a font? Is there an energy? Is there a sacred presence that can hold it for me or with me? Mm -hmm. And that, and I start thinking about who made this cup? Mm -hmm. How many hands touched this cup? Were workers paid fairly when they packed this cup? What weight did the earth bear unduly because of this cup? Like we have a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And there's this both and that happens. And it it sounds like I spent, you know, 27 minutes in the kitchen just staring romantically at my cup, arguing with the existence of life, which <laughs> I didn't. It's much faster than that. But there is a um there is a slowing down that we are invited to do that doesn't have to take all day where suddenly this mythos this this earth mouth this sacred mouth this voice of of the god of cups <laughs> comes through and says tell me what you're holding is it too hot to handle? Is it too much, too little? Ask me the question that's on the tip of your tongue that's behind your heart right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What if you can't hold this? Is there something, someone, some force out there that can help you hold it? That pierces the veil in me that suggests that I'm separate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's, it's just herbal tea in the morning. It doesn't happen every morning, but it happens enough. And I, there's something about, Iona really reinforced this with me so much that to be open, 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 open to receiving the hospitality and the personal, unique, intimate invitation from sacred presence through everything. Like, do not be surprised if the ticket taker at the metro stop at the subway is the face of God today, do mm -hmm. not be surprised if the mm -hmm. trash you pick up while you're grumbling on your walk <laughs> becomes the voice of God. All things are thresholds to the holy. That is right. That is right. All of them out to 
not condemn or convict us, but to just remind us we can thin that veil, thin, thin, thin that veil that ever has us convinced that we too are not the earth and body of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And isn't it interesting how the turn of phrase once upon a time can be that shift of consciousness in the moment when you're drinking from your cup, when you're picking up the trash from the sidewalk, when you are maybe separated from the rea- the sacred reality that everything is holy. Period. I love Wendell Berry's his his line, his statement that there are only how does he say it? There are no desecrated places. Only sacred places and places that have been made unholy. And there's some so then okay, so moving towards this threshold that we're going to cross together towards the story i'll just say again then this phrase once upon a time mm-hmm. can be engaged really in any moment and it it flashes before us the reality that we are in storied mm-hmm. okay once upon a time i was standing in my kitchen drinking out of my cup mm-hmm. dot 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 mm-hmm all of a sudden it's like your I just got chills. It's like your senses awaken to the reality of our storied existence. Right. And it invites a little bit of a participant observer um, way of being. You are the character, but you're also the narrator. You get to watch a little bit and be amazed at what's going on. Be curious, be a little confused. And be like, oh, I want to, I want to keep reading here. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen next when I turn the bend on the sidewalk towards the Seven Eleven that I always pass? What's going to happen though? Maybe mm-hmm. something different, something unexpected, a holy moment, mm-hmm. a holy encounter. Maybe I'll meet that stranger or the the driver of the metro who is the face of God puts you on a different level of alert. And I think that's all, all good stories have us doing, right? Yeah. Turn the next page. What's next? Right. Well, it's, uh, um, I'm, I'm fascinated and, and saddened at how often in at least Western modern culture, there's story is often presented as something to cover up a truth or disconnect from reality. Um, like that's just a story you're telling yourself is a phrase that we use to say, you're kidding yourself. You're not engaged with the truth of something. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, I, I think that we can recall the power and importance of story. Um, and pull it out of our soul. Like, remember it's potency. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of cultural layers on top that suggest that we have our head in the clouds or we have 
a disconnect from reality when we're connecting to story and the story that I know that you're talking about um, and that I'm in conversation with you about and talking about when I say everything speaks, if you listen, this just like thresholds and invitations to connection everywhere is not about putting your head in the sand. It's not about disavowing reality. It's about recognizing there is a generative, co-creative, sacred force at work that is asking you to be involved in the storytelling and in the in the story sharing and in the, well, you say restorying, which I love, but the restoration work of altering our old stories and seeing where they let us down and where they weren't complete and who they left out and who is constantly put on the margin and giving attention and center and focus to um, a greater array of people and experiences and animals and elements and, and truths. The story, if I'm understanding you correctly, that you're talking about is not a hide away from reality in the world and the truth. It's a, let me draw you closer in to a more nuanced truth than you are seeing right now. Is Do I have it? That Absolutely. Kind? Stories are not meant to put us to sleep. They are meant to wake us up. And I think we have done, we've, there was a, a Jedi move or a jiu-jitsu move that was done millennia ago. Um, there was a lie that was told that stories actually were lies. Mm-hmm. Myths were um, false. Yeah. Falsities um, as, as a way almost to put us to sleep as a, as a collective. There are so many um, thinkers in the realm of eco theology, eco psychology, and eco philosophy who are naming that we are in the time of the great sleeping. We have been medicated. We have been lulled by comfort, by um, false senses of certainty. Mm-hmm. That technology that we can just like sleep through our lives mm-hmm. and and myths really are like if we're going to call them a lie they are lies that tell the truth yeah they are the deepest truth tellers about our psyche our collective our collective psyche um how humans are moving through the world they are profound mirrors of our time. And in that way, they're, they work um, really in a broad band of time. While many of these stories are, are ancient and old and had come from particular places, mm-hmm. um, which is really important to note that there are myths. I mean, myths have come from particular cultures, particular people, particular places. Yes. The earth is opening its opening its maw, its its muthos, it's speaking through a particular people and time and place. But myth is transitory. It is on the move. Yes. It reminds me of Aslan. <laughs> it's on the move. <laughs> 
and it migrates to places where those stories, those that truth needs to be told, where people need to be woken up. Right. And so we kind of, we hold that both, that there are literal zip codes to which stories belong, and that there is something inherent in the modality of story that it has four feet. It, it is moving, it is moving yes. and it's going and sniffing out the places where again, it needs to be, it needs to be heard, told to wake people up. Um, and that tells us something, I think it tells us something of the nature of sacred presence too. Mm-hmm. Who has, who walks on four feet and two and comes up through the ground as grass. But mm-hmm. the way myth is on the move, a story is on the move, it moves through us in different ways too. I'm I want us to get to this story of Fox Woman Dreaming, but I noticed today on my walk as I was pulling out my Fox mug and and looking forward to our time together today that already that story from July when I most recently heard it in Iona through through you in that closed space with with those uh friends and the wrens and the birds and the sea and the salt and the cold all around gathered to hear that story. That story has worked on me since and has now telling me new truths that weren't present when I first heard it. Mm-hmm. And what I heard in Iona, I was not hearing the very first time I heard this story either. So it's on the move within our souls. Mm-hmm. It provokes, it changes, it needs us. Like mm-hmm. I mean, K N E A D, but it also N E E D. It needs mm-hmm. us to engage with it. I have been thinking, um, and we will have to get into the story. But when you mentioned like castles and lords and um, kings, I have been reengaging the past few years on some of that language that's rooted in in. Um, some of Christian scripture and why it is so, why I feel so defensive around it and why I don't feel very related to it. And so I've been re-encountering what the archetype of a king could be and the upending of the notion of king that some scripture talks about. But I have been given this image, this story that's been traveling with me for a long time in my meditation practice where I I usually meet sacred presence in several different forms, kind of in the wilderness, by the shore, in a garden, and then night falls and we talk and there's a campfire and it's very pastoral. Um, But in this new image that I've been given recently, I keep walking into a large sanctuary slash castle slash cathedral And there's this huge throne and there's just cobwebs everywhere. And there's this turned over table that's been smashed to bits. And I look around and I feel this presence. It's kind of how I imagine like the Buddha leaving his place of wealth and intentionally entering the the existence and the suffering of the people that he once was lording over. It's the, um, it's the embodied Christ who 
was born into strife and violence and poverty and marginalization and had no throne. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kings who visited him who left their throne intentionally um, to bring tangible resources, not to protect their place of power, but to hear and respond to the need of someone and and give them that time and attention and focus and resources. So there's some presence, could be Jesus, I don't know, <laughs> maybe it's just God the Father, I, it's just this presence and and I say, um, I thought this was, you know, the seed of God. And they just start to belly laugh and they say, I left the throne eons ago. Mm -hmm. You passed me a million times on the way in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we sit and there's like, there's nothing wrong with the throne, but it's empty. Mm -hmm. The two-legged God, the four-legged God, the wind God is out and about provoking yeah, right. and working and tilling and mm -hmm. stoking and comforting and mending and challenging and singing and laughing and baking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I guess... So I feel like I diverted us, but that's something that story does. But yeah, that notion of, of lordship and domination, the more I spend time with the mythos, the mouth of the world and the threshold being ever present and in all places, the more intimate and connected I can feel to my own humanity and to sacred because they left the throne room a long time ago and they're actually out seeking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that you took us there, Jen, because there's in, in what you expressed was certainly again, the, the imagine holding the imagination that God, the divine great mystery is so much more than this particular cultural imagination that put holy mystery on a throne right that there were so many other characters and iterations that was divinity that was deity that you passed by and and so we'll we'll start we'll start walking towards the story now um but that's what myth is inviting us to as well applied mythology another key component of it and it's important i think to speak this before before telling a story that I will invite some application around is that within a story and its myriad of characters are mirrors or aspects of your own psyche. Mm -hmm. You might find that there's one particular character that you really identify with. It might be, you know, it, there's not a king in this story, but we can imagine enough fairy tales to, to know the king archetype or the queen archetype or the princess or the prince. Um, but those are all aspects of our own self. You know, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit unfortunate that there has been um, kind of lazy offhanded comments that have allowed us to be like, Oh, if there's a bad character, it's most likely like my, 
least favorite dog or mm-hmm. my mother-in-law or, and I love my mother-in-law. So she is never any bad character, but you know what I'm saying? Like we've, we kind of done that. Like, Oh, something of the story that's negative or bad, not me, someone else. Yep. But applied mythology gently, it's very gentle says, here's the mirror. All of, all of them are <laughs> all of you, <laughs> including including the forest mm-hmm. and the hut and the talking bear mm-hmm. and the bird and, and the hag, like it is all of you. Yes. And so in what ways then do we find ourselves more holistically through the story? Just like when we can engage a, a vaster imagination for myst- great mystery, sacred mystery, we have a more whole picture of divinity. Mm-hmm. So these stories, when entered that way, um, invite a wholeness. So even though you're hearing gendered language or maybe some sort of kind of binary presentation of character or archetype, it's it's really held in wholeness. It, mm-hmm. it is the both and. It right. is the spectrum. And um, yeah. So should we? Should we? Yeah. Well, let's do it because I love we could just we could talk around it and around it, which is part of the mythic ground, right? We're we're like weaving the web around the story right now and and we'll cert we'll circle in. Yeah. yeah. Um all right. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna just quickly say to everybody, Mary and I chatted about this beforehand. Um, she is going to introduce the story to us and do so in a way that lets us that lets us be escorted. So if you are whipping eggs, if you are taking a walk, if you are fidgeting at your desk and your toes and heels are moving, embrace this movement Mm -hmm. because um, it it will be part of the invitation of switching gears, so to speak. So Mary, I'm just going to let you. Yeah. So dear listeners, we, Jen and I practiced in advance um, to see if my drum would come across the, um, the ethers and and it simply wasn't picking up the sound. So, so Jen is inviting you to pause and take notice of the beat that you are already making in your life, whether that is again, through the whipping of the eggs or the, the walking of your feet on the sidewalk, the, the beat, the drum, the beat of a lived life can and is the vehicle that you need to get in to go into a story. You do not need to take a transatlantic flight to Iona to hear Foxwind Dreaming. You don't even have to go to the library and find the myth section to find a really good book. You simply need to pause, breathe, and acknowledge the beats that are going on all around you the primary beat that is going on within you. And of course that is your heartbeat. And that is what really all percussive instruments are uh, writing. They're writing that beat as a way to connect our bodies to the sacred body of the earth and the sacred body of story. So right now I'm kind of beating my hands together as a way to get into this vehicle and kind of begin that threshold crossing into the sacred landscape of story. And the story that I'm going to share is called Fox Woman Dreaming. I learned this story from my teacher, Martin Shaw. 
And this is a story that comes from the Labrador Inuit people. So this is northeastern Canada. So there's the particulars, right? So there's a particular address to this story. And as we've talked about, the earth opens its mouth to tell a story that is needed to be heard by the people in that landscape, but it also is on the move. It's on the move to other lands, other peoples who are in need of that particular wisdom and truth. So we honor the culture and the people from which this story originated. And with gratitude, we welcome we welcome the energy of an itinerant story who is looking to see if we will open up our hearts and give it home. Once upon a time, long, long ago, in the forest deep within you, there was a hunter. This hunter lived alone, isolated, truly lonely in his, in his whole being. And he would spend his days out in the woods, hunting for food, for substance. And he would return home to his small hut, his small cabin in the woods, most often to a cold hearth, a nearly empty soup pot, and a deep, deep sense of isolation. One day when this hunter was out in the woods, as he was returning home, he, he startled to a stop for he, he saw a small blue line emerging from his chimney. There was smoke coming from his hearth place. He had not had enough here in this, the scarcity, he had not had enough wood that day to start a fire. So confused, he he runs to his hut. He, he comes up onto his pad, his um, porch, and he looks through the window. And indeed, there is a fire. There's a fire in the hearth, and there appears to be a pot full of soup with all the herbs in the world in it. And, and his table is, is set and there's bread and there's butter. And he sees that his clothes that are so always ratty and, and torn and worn thin at the knees and elbows, well, they've been mended and they've been folded and placed on his seat. This is a kindness that he has rarely experienced. And, and so he goes into his cabin and he, he dines. He's still alone, but he's beginning to sense a company that again, in the isolation of his hut, he, he has not experienced before. On the next day, he goes out into the woods again to hunt. And again, he returns to this this blue line coming from his chimney and the soup in the hearth and the fire in the hearth and the table set and the clothes mended and folded. He again dines alone and increasingly aware of a companionship, a presence, but still rightfully alone. Well, this goes on all week. 
going out in the woods, coming back and finding generativity, right? Within his, his hut. And I'm sure if we were the hunter, we would have probably returned to the hut a lot earlier than he did to find out the why this was going on, but it took him a bit of time. Took him a bit of time. So it was at week's end that he realized, oh, maybe I should return early and see if I could catch whoever is making this soup. Maybe I could catch him in the act. So he returns early on the end of the week's day and quietly comes up onto the porch and looks through the window. And indeed, there he sees a woman standing over the pot within the hearth putting in what appear to be all of the herbs within the world. And she has long red hair flowing down to the small of her back. And he knows, as a hunter knows, that he is gazing at fox woman dreaming. Part fox, part woman, and part anima mundi, the soul of the world. And she knew in a way that women know that she was being watched. And she spun on her heel and she pegged him with her piercing gaze and through the window says, I will be the woman of this house. And at this point, the hunter's wisdom is kind of, it's kind of peaked right now. It's, it's perked up. He says, okay. And he enters the door into his hut and into companionship. For together they sat down at the table and they supped. They put thick, thick butter on that warm bread and they filled up their soup bowls high and they poured their glasses full of a rich, heady wine, or maybe it was kombucha or Diet Coke, whatever it is, they filled their cups to the top and they ate and they drank. And apparently Foxwoman knows some really good jokes because he was laughing and laughing and he knew some good stories for she was engaged and enthralled. And it was one of those nights that and around 5 a.m. in the morning when the candle stubs are really, well, they're gone. And maybe the pizza boxes are still open and now you're eating cold pizza. Like it's that kind of goodness is what these two shared. And this companionship, this, this new, exciting, emerging relationship began. And she would look at him and this engaging, emerging relationship. And she, with her words and with her eyes, indicated that on the back of the door of the hut hung a fox pelt. And he recognized that this, this pelt was of her, related to her, was hers, and, and it was fine. It was a presence that seemed to, to just be with this new company in his home. But there was, there was kind of an odor about it. If you've ever smelt a fox pelt, 
or really any pelt for that matter. You know that there's a wild, musky nature to it. But I think with the the new scent of the soup in the house and freshly laundered clothes, there was something pardonable about this smell within the cabin. For he didn't really pay it much attention. And they continued their days together, going out together into the woods, gardening around the hut. All of a sudden there were like, you know, flower pots on the patio and there's, you know, nice raised beds around. There's this sense of feminine domestication that is coming into play. You can imagine that maybe even on his pillowcases, there's new embroidery marks and maybe his, you know, his name has been embroidered into, (laughs) into his handkerchiefs. And like, there's just this sense of care that has come into his life. But there is also something else that's coming and it's, it's coming through the smells of soup and the smells of fresh bread and laundered clothing. It's the smell of the fox pelt. And, and he begins to ask fox woman, you know, what, what about this pelt? Do you think we could, you know, it kind of stinks a little bit. I'm wondering if we could just hang it outside, you know, like put it over the railing. Does it really need to be in inside of, of the cabin and she would just shake her head no no this this stays with me this stays and again kind of okay all right I get it days nights pass their lives continue it's beautiful round well the smell began to really bother the hunter and he began to feel like it was getting kind of in his, in his, in his clothes, it couldn't be washed out anymore. And he was smelling it in his hair and he was smelling it under his fingernails. And he again comes to a fox woman and says, we've got it. We've got to do something about this pelt. It's getting a little, he's getting a little bit more firm here. I really want that pelt outside. And again, the sad, the sad shake of the head, like, no, the pelt stays, it stays with me. Days pass. And the two are together at the table and they're beginning to dine. And the smell of the fox pelt is entirely in the hunter's nose. He cannot smell the soup. He cannot smell the bread. He cannot smell the freshly laundered clothes. And he pounds his fist on the table and he says, get rid of the fucking pelt. Asked you once. I've asked you twice. This is the third time. I want the pelt gone. You can stay. But let's put the belts on the back 40. Boxwoman looks at him with a sad gaze and puts the pelt out. And in the morning, when the hunter awoke, the hearth was cold. And the soup pot was empty. And there was no bread on the table. And his clothes were not laundered. And somehow even all the seams seems to have seemed to have split. And the threadbare knees knees were all the more threadbare. And he was alone. There was no fox woman in his in his hut any longer. 
And they say, and they say truly that the hunter to this day is on his porch looking out, looking out into the expanse of the forest, longing with his whole heart for the return of Fox Woman Dreaming. So now you might find your hands again or that whisk or tune into your feet walking on the sidewalk as a way to kind of get back into the vehicle that brings us kind of back into our moment where we are right now. For the sake of time, I'm not going to dissect this story too much, but I want to invite a little bit of applied mythology. So we have this, this exquisite story that undoubtedly, however it has landed in you, the listeners, has provoked something. So I would say this moment, this is when you reflect on a primary image that captured your attention. Primary image. Maybe that was the image of Foxwoman spinning on her heel and that gaze through the window or, or something of the the thickly buttered bread or the kindness of folded clothes or what it would look like for a pelt to hang on the back of a door. But hold that image. Be curious about that image. Connect to that image. And wonder why. So I can't speak much more to that. This is where you get to pick that up. Wonder why that was alluring to you. You might also want to think about the characters. Why did it take the hunter so long to return earlier to find out who, who was sourcing all of this life within the cabin. When have you been a little bit slow on the uptake of when soul and spirit are present in your life? What were those conditions? What are those conditions? What are three things that you are currently dealing with in your life that this story appears to speak directly to? This could be scarcity. This could be loneliness. This could be 
abundance. This could be partnership. It could be rejection, betrayal. And you can see that even in the naming of those very real emotional spaces, places, and response to life circumstances, there's the arc of the story. So applied mythology is very helpful in that it gives us a story arc in which we can find ourselves in our lives. When we don't know stories, when books are being banned, and our kiddos or ourselves lose access to particular stories that have come from particular places and particular times, we lose access and sources to wisdom that would help guide us, that would help give us images, in a sense, give us a compass for where we are and why we are in our life story. Now, Fox Woman Dreaming does a thing where it doesn't resolve in a way that at least I would want it to resolve. But there's something in that tension that I think is much needed in the times that we are in right now. It's a bit open-ended. It asks us, what, what do we need to do for Fox Woman to return? And again, all of these characters are, are us. We are the hut. We are the forest. We are the soup, we are the bread. I am the mended clothes. I am the frayed knee. I am fox woman and I am the hunter. That's a hard one. I am the one who hangs my pelt on the door and I'm also the one who doesn't want it. But what do we do now with unrequited desire? So I think I'll pause there. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing it. Mm-hmm. Ah, I love the way you tell that story. I love the way story. And I believe sacred does this too, which is why they so mingle for me all the time. And I cry on the podcast again every week. I say, I'm not going to, it's just here it is. Um, there's a difference between being admonished or preached to convicted and condemned and being invited. A story invites the sacred invites, which means when we sit with all these internal characters and we sit with our feelings of rejection or control or misunderstanding or exiling parts of ourselves or regret. I wish I had never done that. 
of scarcity, whatever it is we're sitting with when we hear the story on a particular occasion, it is invitational in that we have the opportunity to say to the story, to the sacred voice in the story, tell me more of what you would have me know about myself that I am not seeing. I'm activated in certain ways right now. I'm mad that she left. Lift up that rock with me and tell me more of the wisdom that is in me, but I can't name yet. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we get invited to is a new resolution. Mm -hmm. The story ends with a loose tension. It cuts off without resolution because we are invited, not condemned by the story. We are invited now to go finish the story in a new way that uh-huh. addresses what we wish was present in the story and wasn't. We can send the hunter off into the forest with apology. Mm-hmm. We can we can seek what we have exiled from ourselves. Uh-huh. That is how, that's where the living invitation is for me and with sacred and story all of the time. It's mm-hmm. not sit in the corner, I've put you there. Now I've named you Hunter. No. Yeah, there's, it's, it's myth. Myth is not dealing with morality. No. It really isn't. It is simply a stack of mirrors. Mm-hmm. It is in, it is a way to see deeper into yourself, also culture at large, and it invites you to be a co-participant in the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a real, it's really different than morality plays in that way. Like this is, and, and we can't do the thing of like saying, oh, the hunter was bad. Nope. No, because you know what? Fox pelts do stink. They do. Well, morality plays put an end. They put a cap. They give an answer. They tie a corset. Mm -hmm. It gets put on a shelf in a box. Mm -hmm. That's it. Four feet, two feet, a wandering god who's left a throne room fox woman dreaming back in the wilderness myth these are all things like a cup like a poem like a question that give us structure mm-hmm. an invitation into into new resolution into new storytelling into new connection we are provoked in we have a reaction when we hear the story and then we're asked to sit with it long enough that it evokes a response from us, which is different than a reaction. We get to have ourselves intentionally triggered and activated. Mm-hmm. And then we get to sit to see what wisdom plunges and rises in us. We get to invite the sacred in to do this sacred listening, to let mm-hmm. the story do its work on us and in us for us to ask questions but when the story is left unresolved, that is the place of creation for us. That's right. This is the place of hope and possibility and new opportunity. Mm-hmm. This is where 
the circle we have named in a circle a beginning and an end, but there is no beginning or end. So we get to say at any and every moment, I will do it differently this time or try. This is this beautiful network of roots and leaves and air currents and stories through time that we can get connected to. The sacred is leaving a door open for us to continue to co-create something new rather than being tied up in a corset or boxed up on a shelf, shoved in a corner and told to pipe down. Mm -hmm. This is an invitation into not just a sense of belonging, but an active belonging. It's so good. It's and it, it and it really can happen at any moment. So at any moment we get to start the story over again, even by saying, once upon a time. Mm-hmm. And while the bones of the story will remain the same, we get to bring our current life context, our current story into play with the bones of these old myths and have them be in conversation and it gets wild and curious and we had this experience on Iona where as soon as the story is now out of the mouth Mm -hmm. and we are all carrying it with us Mm -hmm. the enchanted reality of, of of foxes like being everywhere Yep. Start happening. So folks be on the lookout because on Iona, all mm-hmm. of a sudden foxes were showing up on socks, mm-hmm. on hot, hot mitts in the kitchen, kiddos on the Island. Like we're carrying around Fox stuffies, and like Fox styled backpacks. And I mean, it was wild. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, this is what story longs for. It longs for embodiment, but our mouths have to open to tell the wisdom first and let the story out so it can be on the move again. Mm-hmm. And the fox pelts are everywhere, mm-hmm. looking, desiring to be back in our story, mm-hmm. back in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So excited. I got to hear this story again from you. I will t- I'm will. i going to be taking my walks this week. I leave the house every day and I, I don't know why it's not an option to go straight ahead. I mean, I'd walk into my neighbor's house if I did, but like, you know, to go west would be straight for me. I don't ever go west. I either go, I either go north or south when I leave the house. I go right or left. Do I go on the trail that has wild fennel growing and feral cats and uh, bush tits and, and, you know, traffic and other things, but just kept far enough away that I can smell the creek. I can see the, uh, uh, the beavers lodges. I can smell that wild fennel and that, that dry Western earth, or do I go right? And walk to the grove of grandmother um, sequoias right outside of the community baseball field where the old people play baseball. They have their walkers, their knee braces. Um, Sometimes the Sikh community is there playing. um, 
now I can't remember the name of baseball in England. That's not baseball, cricket. Cricket. But I see these, but our community gathers on this field and there's this community of trees, this cathedral of trees always there. It's like, what direction do I go in? And maybe this time with the story in my heart, I will go West. I will go forward and see Mm. um, what besides a Kentucky fried chicken I'll run into. If I go in that direction, there's something beyond the KFC I know, but, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. but I, I'm excited to invite Fox Woman and the um, the pelt and the bread and the hunter into these walks because they will travel with me for a long time. They did after July and they will after today too. It's a living being, these stories. They are a living being. So we've all now entered into this, what would be called a triadic affair where we were the listener to the story. And then we could be the tellers of the story and the watchers of the story. So like we witness now where the story shows up. So like, well, welcome in <laughs> to, to this triadic affair, everyone. It's, it's so fun. It's fun. It is so fun. Well, and it's so generous. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Fun sounds trite. And, and I want to acknowledge that, it doesn't have to look somber and, um, you know, kind of smoky, like smoke lit rooms. Like it's, there's a delight in this and there's a play, the level of play that story. I think it's, it's one of its modalities is in playfulness. Right. Yeah. Will you see me? What can you catch me now? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I just invite that spirit too. Yeah. Fox woman can be, it can, it's, there's a, um, there's a sobering gut punch in that one. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And as we're wrapping up, I want to, I mean, I want to say to you, Marion, and I'm saying this to remind myself and I'm offering it to people listening. um, There's a deep mercy and compassion in the swaddling that story does. It invites us so close, but we can still not, we, we don't need to dismiss it, but we can say it is a story. So when, when, when we are pricked in particular ways with story, when things are agitated or triggered, when places of joy and maybe pain and heartbreak gets surface for us, when we hear these stories, we can give gratitude for the story to let us get very close to what hurts and then put it at arm's length again to put the book on the shelf again so to speak there's a time where we come home from our walk where we can't spend all day in the deep learning wisdom of what it means that box woman dreaming leaves but we can close that chapter, put it on the shelf, go through our day, let Fox Woman Dreaming, Sacred, our own self, speak to us in whispers throughout the day. And the next day on a walk or whisking eggs, we're essentially pulling that story back down and re-engaging those mm-hmm. joys and those wounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's not, 
it can happen, the unfolding of our own understanding, our own relationship, whatever healing journey may, may be initiated by some of these stories, the deep questions, we are, we are allowed to take them at our pace mm-hmm. because the story is always there holding that, that, that space for us to re-enter it when the time is ready. There's that Kairos time again mm-hmm. that's going on. We get to align our engagement with when the time is right for us. Mm-hmm. The story we are allowed to say to the story. This 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 is bringing up so much, and I I'm kind of at my threshold for it. I am always amazed at how threshold first seems to appear as our breaking point, and later becomes our place of passage. Mm-hmm. And we get to slowly massage that place in us that story provokes so that it isn't just a gaping wound or a place of rupture or a snapping. It becomes the doorway, the dock, mm-hmm. the porch, the thing mm-hmm. that we get to cross. But but the story gives us this merciful gift of like this much today that we'll engage with. And tomorrow, the medicine will still be present when you're ready to receive it. That's right. That's inherently non-dominating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also think speaks to something of the character of sacred and sacred story. Mm-hmm. If there's a titration there, a gentleness. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Okay. So everybody listening, check the show notes. I have lots of links for Mary's work so that you can encounter her presence, her voice, her wisdom, her teaching, her collaborative uh, retreats and pilgrimages here in the U.S. and in Scotland. And you have uh, things available online for people to connect to, right? I do. I do. I do. Yeah. So those will be in the show notes too, I hope, and um, would love would love to in, engage with you all in um, these various places um, and spaces and um, would just say blessing, blessing on the books that you will open and the stories of your lives that will be told and, and, and go gently, go gently into those pages. Go gently. Yeah. Friends, thanks for joining us, Mary. Thank you for joining us. Until next week. Bye. Bye.